Thank you to our uh, musicians. They serve us well every week. And uh, also, I don't mention all the time, but thank you to the folks that do the sound and the live stream and everything. Um, especially Linda Nemeth, she I, some weeks is like juggling eight things back there and uh, trying to keep uh, everything going. So just really appreciate these servants uh, and the way that they um, consistently help things go well behind the scenes so that we don't even notice. Um, so it's, it's uh, just they're serving the Lord in doing that. John chapter 12, obviously, is where we're going to be this morning. We'll finish up this whole section of the Gospel of John. One of the key questions right now facing our society is the lack of trust that people have in the major institutions that have been the backbone of our culture for a long time. Now, that's quite a sentence to start out with this morning, isn't it? But it's true. You hear about this all the time. There is a growing distrust in educational institutions, in health experts, in government, in media, in churches, all of that is, is happening right now and is increasing. Now, some of you may say, well, I don't trust them because they're all idiots. <laughs> I suppose that's a possibility that that's true and that it, it is the case, but regardless of why, that's not what I'm interested in getting into this morning, there is an ongoing conversation happening among some very smart people, as to some of them Christians, as to why this erosion of trust in institutions is taking place in our culture and why it seems to be growing with each passing week and month. It's really a fascinating question. I've listened to some conversations on this, read some, a few books on this. But the, the key question that I want to highlight for you this morning is what causes a lack of trust and how can one gain back trust or restore trust? Now, as this conversation has been going on, there are a host of answers, again, that I'm not going to get into this morning, but there, there are a host of answers to that question that have been given over the last few years. Why these societal institutions have lost trust, why people have lost trust in them. But I want to, I want to take that question and I want to pull it over into the biblical world for a second, and I want to ask why don't people, particularly in the gospel that we're studying, the gospel of John, why don't they trust Jesus? Why don't they believe in Jesus? What causes them to not believe? And the reason that I frame it like that is we've been all the way through these first 12 chapters. We're going to finish up chapter 12 this morning. And I want you to think about the situation. The situation in Israel with Jesus and people who have seen what he's done. You have a guy who comes onto the scene and teaches with authority, we find out in other Gospels, and explains the Old Testament in a way that people have never heard before. They recognize this. And on top of his teaching as a rabbi, he performs miraculous sign after miraculous sign. All the time, it seems like he is doing something that just blows people out of the water. He turns water into wine at a wedding. People are shocked and amazed at this. He heals a man who has been born blind. He heals a man who's been crippled for 38 years. He feeds thousands of people with virtually nothing. And there's an abundance left over to the point where they're willing to make him king. They want to make him king because he provides for them. 
And then to top it all off in John chapter 11, he actually raises a guy from the dead who has been dead for four days to the point where his sister is concerned that he's going to smell when they open up the grave. Things are not pretty in there, she thinks and knows. And Jesus speaks a word and prays to the Father and raises him from the dead. And lots of people see this. And the authorities know that this this stuff is going on. Add this to the fact that all of these people have built into their culture and into their religion that they are expecting a guy like this to some extent, right? They're expecting a Messiah to come. The Old Testament has promised that a Messiah will come. And so when he calls for a response after doing all this stuff and teaching all of this, like he does at the beginning of the passage that Danny read this morning, John 12, verse 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When he calls for a response, why don't the people respond in faith? Why don't the religious leaders respond in faith to him? Why don't they see him for who he is? And after all of these chapters and all of these signs and this teaching and explanation, we get to these last few verses, and that is the question that John is going to go after in these last few verses. It's the question that is the title, Why Unbelief? This brings to a a conclusion the first whole section of the Gospel of John. A lot of times we call this the book of signs because it highlights all of these signs that Jesus has done. And this this portion we're going to look at this morning brings all of that to a conclusion. And that's the question on the screen, why unbelief, that we're going to try to get at because John is going at this this morning as he concludes this section. Why unbelief? And here's what we're going to see this morning. Three reasons for unbelief that serve as a warning for us, right? This is a warning passage. When you see the work of Christ, the right response is to believe that you may become sons of light. And it's a warning to us to understand why unbelief happens, to evaluate our own lives, and then to respond in faith to him. Three reasons for unbelief that serve as a warning for us. And the first one of these is divine judgment. Verses, the rest of verse 36 through verse 41. Now, Buckle up for this one, okay? All right? Um, This one might shake you up a bit. Is divine judgment really a reason that people don't come to faith in Christ? Absolutely. And you're going to see that from the text and from his use of the Old Testament this morning. So we just saw, I just read to you the the beginning of verse 36. This is a, a call, one more call that Jesus issues to the crowds that are around him, to believe in him as the light. He's come as the light who reveals the Father. They're walking in darkness. He says to them, pleads with them, offers to them again to believe in the light so that they can become sons of light. And now, after that call that he issues, that invitation, I want you to see what Jesus does here in the second half of verse 36. Look there. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. He intentionally hides from the people, and this, in the context, is an act of judgment. It's removing from them the opportunity to believe. Why? Why does he do this? Look at verse 37. 
Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. This is basically a summary of the whole first 12 chapters of John. I know some people have believed, and we'll see that later on, but a whole host have not. The religious leaders have not. Most of the crowds have not, and this is a summary. They've seen, they've heard, they've come face to face with him. He's put his glory on display. He's told people about his relationship with the Father. He's performed sign after sign, and all he has received is rejection from most of those who have heard him. Now, this is not the first time in Israel's history that something like this has happened. There has been a very dramatic work of God. The people have seen it, and they have rejected it. I'm sure you can think of another time when this happened in the Exodus. Deuteronomy 29, verses 2 through 4, Moses is preaching to them right before this group of people goes into the promised land. It's the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy, and here's what he says. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, to all his servants, to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, interesting, and those great wonders. But to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. He's talking to them. They've seen about their time in Egypt. They've seen all of the plagues and all that God brought on, and they refused to believe. Why has this happened again in Israel? Look at verse 38. So that, right, so here's the explanation as to why the people didn't believe. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And here's the quote, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Their unbelief fulfills Scripture. How? That seems like a wild thing. The passage he's quoting here, you may recognize, is from a very familiar passage in the Old Testament. It's Isaiah 53 and verse 1. I think I have this on the screen here, right? Here's what he says. Who has believed what he's heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? All right. This is part of a bigger section in Isaiah that begins three verses earlier in chapter 52 and verse 13 and goes all the way through, through chapter 53. It's the, the suffering servant song, right? It's the song that most people believe points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what he says in 52, 13 through 15, that begins this song of the servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So through that marring, he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, that which they have not heard, they understand. And so God's suffering servant, Isaiah looks forward and sees that he will be exalted. He will be glorified through his suffering. But chapter 53, the next part that he quotes here, says that this suffering and this exaltation and his ministry and his work will be met with what? Unbelief. Who has believed our report? Who has seen the arm of the Lord, the salvation of God? Who, to whom has it been revealed? And the point of what the reason Isaiah is asking those questions is people will reject it, particularly 
the Jews, who he has come to, his own people he came to, and they did not receive him. And so John looks back to this passage and understands in Jesus' time the rejection of the Jews, of Jesus, to be the fulfillment of the expectation of Isaiah 53.1. Okay? You might think, well, that's just God seeing what would happen in advance in the people's unbelief and then writing Isaiah 53.1 because he saw what would happen. Well, that might be true if it were not for verses 39 and 40 in John 12. Look there. Verse 39. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, this quote is taken from Isaiah chapter 6, which is another familiar passage. It's Isaiah 6.10. I want you to go ahead and flip back to Isaiah 6, because we need to look at this to understand what's going on here. So hold your finger in John chapter 12, and then flip back to Isaiah chapter 6. So this passage, Isaiah 6, let me give you a little bit of the context here so you can understand. This is Isaiah's commissioning to serve the Lord, okay? This is that whole throne room scene where he has a vision of God on the throne in his heavenly throne room. He sees the the cherubim around him. And then Isaiah is so overwhelmed with his sin that one of the angels comes and cleanses his sin with a coal. And he's commissioned to speak on behalf of the Lord. So Isaiah is a prophet, and this is the point where he receives the call to go and speak for the Lord. Now, let me remind you, Isaiah actually volunteers for this, okay? Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8. Look there. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. All right? So Isaiah says, I'm going to go and I'm going to represent God. I'm willing to go. What does God tell Isaiah will be the outcome of his ministry? Thousands will come to to the Lord in faith and belief. Not at all. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. Isaiah volunteers to go and speak God's word, and God says, I'm actually going to use my word spoken through you as an act of judgment on the Israelites. Look at what verses 9 and 10 say. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And this is what Isaiah's ministry is going to do. This is something you hope to never hear as a a pastor and someone that preaches week in and week out, right? Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So God... God is going to send Isaiah, and Isaiah is going to speak, and it's actually going to bring judgment on the people because they're going to continue further into their unbelief. God is going to, God's word is going to harden their already sinful hearts, and they will be liable to judgment because of their continued rejection of God's word that is spoken through Isaiah. Now, Isaiah has a very legitimate question here in verse 11. Look there. Then I said, how long, O Lord? How long am I going to have to do this, right? And he said, and here's the point, until judgment falls. 
until God's purposes and plans in judgment come to the nation of Israel, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And then, here's what you have to understand about this judgment that's going to fall on Israel. It's through the judgment of exile and through the judgment that God brings on them that a remnant is able to come and that the Messiah rises out of this. Look at verse 13. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. And so there's a promise of something holy coming out of all of this judgment. Now, this seems harsh, right? Let's be honest. We're reading this. God commissions Isaiah. He's going to go preach. And like the sun coming onto mud, it's going to harden the mud, which is their hearts. Does God not want them to come to him? Does he not want them to respond in faith? And the key here is you have to read Isaiah 6 as part of the larger context of Isaiah. What happens in Isaiah chapters 1 through 5? Because it's only after you read those chapters that you get to Isaiah's commissioning here. Let me show you a couple of passages that God speaks to the nation of Israel in chapters 1 to 5. Look back. You're right there in Isaiah 6. Isaiah 1, verses 2 through 4. What's the situation in Israel when God commissions Isaiah to go and preach to harden the hearts of the people? Here's the situation. Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Look at verse 10 of chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. God's not talking to Sodom and Gomorrah here. They're long gone. Who's he talking to? He's calling Israel Sodom because that's how sinful they are at this point. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teachings of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Chapters 1 through 5 are filled with language like this. And then God commissions Isaiah to go and preach, and what's his preaching going to do? It's going to harden them in their already hard hearts to the point where judgment ultimately comes. 
And so God uses Isaiah as an instrument of judgment. Why? To bring about his purposes. And I told you already that ultimately those purposes are explained in verse 13 and other passages that the Messiah is going to come through all of this. So now, go back to John 12. Got a little bit of context there of this text that is spoken in verse 40 or is quoted there. When John says this about the ministry of Jesus, it's the same thing that's happening. The people have rejected and rejected and rejected over the years. They've refused to obey God's word. And so God, in some ways, sends Jesus as an instrument to harden their hearts. And it's through his proclamation of the word of God to them and their rejection of it that ultimately God's purposes are going to be accomplished. Look at verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. Whose glory? Glory of Christ and spoke of him. And so Isaiah ties the whole throne room scene as Isaiah seeing the glory of Christ and anticipating what's going to happen in Israel. So let me pull all this together and try to simplify it for us now after all of that detail and going back into the Old Testament. Israel has a history of rejecting God's revelation and truth and pursuing their own way. You've seen that in Deuteronomy. You've seen that in Isaiah. Jesus comes and proclaims the truth and it hardens some and softens others. It brings salvation and it brings his word, brings judgment. And here's the key point. And this puts the glory of God on display. God's judgment falling on these people through the hardening of their hearts, actually accomplishes God's purposes of a crucified Messiah. How does Jesus end up going to the cross? It's because they don't believe. And they send him to the cross. And they hate him. And they kill him. And at the same time, this is the glory of God as well. At the same time, God is not a puppet master. They're not robots. Just like they weren't robots in Moses' day and in Isaiah's day. The Bible never presents people as being just absolutely controlled by God to the point where they're not responsible. They are responsible for their decisions. And it's in the midst of all of this, God planning it all and working it out and the people making choices that they are responsible for that God's glory is put on display as the Messiah comes and dies. This is the expected outcome, the planned outcome of sinful patterns in the Jewish people. It's also part of God's sovereign plan for the Messiah to die on the cross. All of it is under his sovereign will for our salvation, which is a glorious thing. So here's the warning for us from this. There are times when unbelief is a matter of God's judgment. It's a scary thing. The offer is there. The word is preached. The word is clear. You reject it. It hardens your heart. And God allowing your hard, heart to be hardened through the preaching of his word, him even executing the hardness of your heart through the preaching of his word is an act of judgment that he brings. And so what this means for us is that we must pay careful attention when God's word is preached, particularly if you are not in Christ. If you're sitting here this morning, 
hearing God's word and rejecting it. Pay careful attention. Allow faith to get a root in you and to grow. Why unbelief? That's the first reason for it. The second one, divine judgment and distorted affections. is verses 42 and 43. Some of you might remember the name of Christopher Hitchens. Does anybody remember that name, Christopher Hitchens? Okay. He's probably been dead for 15 or so years now. Uh, But Christopher is a British guy or was a British guy who was a very, very gifted writer and communicator. And he had loads of God-given talent. And he was an ardent atheist. He was an angry atheist. Oftentimes there is not any other kind. But in his case, that was very true. And he, in all of his writings, he had a book called God is Not Great. I think that was him. Maybe that wasn't him. But he talked about religion as being terrible for the world. That was his argument. And he thought of unbelief as very much rooted in reason. It was logical not to believe. Okay, let me show you a quote that he said here. Religion is poison because it asks us to give up our most precious faculty, which is that of reason, and to believe things without evidence. It then asks us to respect this, which it calls faith. And so the underlying assumption here in his thinking in this quote and in in all of the way he approached religion and faith is that one continues in unbelief because of one's airtight reasoning. Logical thoughts lead to unbelief. Now, reason is very important. It's vitally important to human beings, but it is not the driving factor in how we live our lives. And I think you see that here. Why do people not believe? It's not because they have airtight, logical reasoning and they just can't bring themselves to believe. Oftentimes, most of the time, maybe even all the time, it is because their loves and their affections are put on the wrong things. They're driven by their hearts and what they want in life. You live out of your loves and your desires and your affections more than you do out of your logical reasoning. And I am the same way. And when your loves and affections are distorted and aimed at the wrong thing, they cause unbelief. This is what you see in verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many even of the the authorities believed in him. Now, let me stop there for a second. You're like, well, they believed. If you've been with us in the Gospel of John, you've seen that there have been many groups of people who have John has said they believed, but it wasn't a full and a saving faith. It was sort of an interest in Jesus and in the signs that he performed. But it wasn't faith in Jesus's person and in his teaching. It was a fascination with him and with the miracles that he performed and and an interest in wanting more of that. And I think that's exactly what he's describing here. The reason I think that is because of what he continues to say. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Why didn't they confess it? For, verse 43, they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. This explanation as to their unbelief gives us two sides of the same coin. On the one side, you have their love 
their desire for the glory of man, and on the other side, you have their fear at losing the approval of others. And that's how we operate in our desires. What we fear reveals to us on the flip side what we love, and what we love will often reveal what we fear. The most important factor for these people in any given situation was what others thought of them. That was the the driving love and affection of their lives. That is what determined how they acted and what they believed. They would not confess publicly in Jesus, which means they wouldn't affirm him in front of other people because of their fear and because of their love. They love the glory of man. This is talked about other places in Scripture. Matthew 6, oops, I didn't put it on the screen. Matthew 6, 1 talks about this, where um, Jesus is talking about the hypocrites. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. They loved the praise of people to the point where it determined their actions and what they feared. Now, that was their issue here in this situation, their fear and their love for the praise of man. But we could sort of take this and by application expand it out to other areas of our lives. What do we fear and what do we love? And using biblical terminology, when something we fear or something we love causes us to to hold something in a higher esteem than God, we call that idolatry. That's the quote that clicked up there a minute ago. This is a definition from Tim Keller of idolatry. It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And so this passage, I think, is a warning to us that almost anything can become an idol. Even wanting the the approval of others, being a people pleaser, can become such a desire of your heart that it begins to form your life and your actions away from God, just like it did for these people here. And that is a reason for unbelief, your loves and your affections. The last reason for unbelief here is in verses 44 through 50. The dismissal of divine revelation. And obviously you could put this as the umbrella over all of them, I think. Back in verse 35 there, Jesus has said that the crowds would only have a little while longer with him there. Then in verse 36, we saw that he hid himself in an act of judgment. Well, now it appears in verse 44 that in one last invitation, one last offer, he comes back into the public eye. And this is the last time in the Gospel of John that he will be in the public eye from a teaching standpoint until we get to the crucifixion. And then it's a whole different story and ballgame. But I think you can even see the grace of Christ here in hiding himself in judgment and then in once again proclaiming who he is and offering eternal life through belief in him in these verses. One last appeal in verses 44 to 50. Now, I want you to understand what you have here in verses 44 to 50. This is the end of the first whole section of the Gospel of John. This is the summary of the whole first 
Book of Signs, chapters 1 to 12. This summary here comes in three parts, and it makes three points that summarize everything we've learned so far about Jesus in the first 12 chapters of this gospel. Let me show you these three statements, essentially, that Jesus makes. First of all, in verses 44 to 46, he makes the point that he's come to reveal the Father as the light. Jesus comes as the light, and it's in order to showcase the Father. Now, you could go back over the first 12 chapters. You could connect this back to those chapters. We're not going to do that this morning, but that's what he's doing here. Let me read them to you. Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So he's come as the light because of who sent him, and he's come to reveal who sent him. That's the first major teaching that Jesus summarizes here that we've seen in the first 12 chapters. Second, verses 47 and 48. Jesus came into the world as the light in order to save. But when he comes to save, the offer of salvation brings with it automatically the possibility of judgment. Because the truth has been spoken, now it's out there, and if you reject it, judgment comes. Verses 47 and 48. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That's the purpose of why Jesus came. But, verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Salvation and judgment are why he came. That's the second part of this. So he came as a light to reveal the Father. He brings salvation and judgment through his proclamation of who he is. And then third, verses 49 and 50, his entire ministry comes with divine authority. He comes as the light. He comes to save and brings judgment. And all that he speaks comes with divine authority. Look at verse 49. Here's the explanation of why there will be judgment on the last day based on his words. Why do his words matter more than anything else? Verse 49, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So you put these three together and you have a powerful revelation of Christ and a powerful statement to believe in, to understand and to trust. Jesus has come from the Father as the light to save and he brings words of eternal life from the Father that have divine authority behind them. Now I want you to think about that word authority for a second because we, we need to chase that down a bit. So we really understand the weight with which these first 12 chapters of John should sit on us and should constrain and control us and compel belief. What does it mean that the words of Jesus and the revelation of who he is in chapters 1 to 12 have divine authority? I think that word authority is so important. Here's how J.I. Packer defines this. It is a relational word. Authority signifies the right to rule. It is expressed in claims 
and is acknowledged by compliance and conformity. We talk about authority in order to sort out what factors in a situation should determine our attitudes and actions. The goal of such talk is to ensure that right decisions properly reached do in fact get made. Wherever we credit something with authority, a textbook, a ruling, a document, or whatever, we mean that in its own sphere it is more or less decisive as a guide to what should be said or done. A right to rule. Something has authority in your life when it has a determinative weight that compels your attitudes, your actions, what you believe, and how you live, and even how you feel. God has revealed himself in Christ, and that revelation and the words that have been given in John 1-12 to have profound authority for every human being that is born into this world. They have profound authority because they come from the God of the universe, the creator God. And so they should compel belief, action, and response. That's why he says what he says in verse 49. For, it's an explanation. It's because of the source of these words that they have divine authority. They do not come from a mere human being. They do not come from a human institution. When we lived in California, I had a a very good friend of of mine who I respected, and I'm prepping this because of what he told me. I loved him. I respected him. I enjoyed spending time with him. He was a little bit older than me, so I listened to what he said. And he told me one day, that any time I got a jury summons from the, the county of Los Angeles, that I should just toss it in the trash. And I shouldn't worry about it. And his reasoning was, he said, I've, I, don't, I haven't responded to those things in like 20 years because it's such a big county and there's so many people and they send out so many thousands of them that I just throw them in the trash and they're not going to track me down. They're not going to come after me. Now, I'm not encouraging you to do that this morning, all right? And I can't tell you whether I listened to him or not. (laughs) But I can tell you that what he was indicating was that that jury summons did not have any authority in his life, according to him. Now, I don't know that that was entirely true. What would have happened if they would have followed up? There would have been some compelling response, some authority to dictate what he says and does. There could have been a fine. There could have been jail time. Whatever it was, the government actually did have a right to rule in that situation. But he was ignoring their summons and their claim of authority in his life. That's a human institution. And biblically, the government does have a level of authority given by God, right? That's true. But it's a human institution there. What would be the result if you were to reject God's authority spoken through his word in your life? To just sort of throw it in the trash, to get rid of it, to ignore that it ever came to you. What would be the result? Hebrews 2. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? 
It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. You and I have the most authoritative words in the universe from the God who created it all and rules over it all. So what is your posture to these words this morning? What is your response to the first 12 chapters of John? Do you mostly ignore them? Do you pick what you like out of his words and respond in faith to what you enjoy and discard the rest? Or do these words have the determinative authority over your life, your beliefs, and your actions? Because that's what Jesus is saying they have. The whole first 12 chapters of John should be authoritative in our lives and compel us to belief and then to discipleship of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for these words this morning and the authority they have in our lives. We pray that as we think about this, as we read them, as we respond to them, that our hearts would respond in submission and faith. And Lord, your right to rule, your authority is not the authority of a tyrant, of a despot. Your authority is an easy yoke and a light burden. It is a good authority that comes to us with love, with with love to the extent where you have sent your only begotten Son into the world in order that we might come to you and be saved and live life to the fullest in response to who you are, in relationship with you. This is the type of authority that we we need, even if we don't recognize it. And so I pray this morning that our response to this would be one of humble submission and not proud rejection. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.